This is Ken Lubin, the host and founder of the Executive Athletes Podcast, and welcome to this week's episode. I want to thank everyone that's been listening, and thank you for the comments and feedback. They're awesome and an incredible help in this journey to making this podcast better and better each episode. Hopefully, it's better throughout the time, so let me know and give me feedback if it's not. But again, once again, this is unscripted and unedited, as I believe it's the best way to get to really know the guest. Um, this week's guest came to me via another great connection, another podcast um, that I had done earlier. But this person is absolutely phenomenal. She's overcome some crazy adversity in her life and her athletic career and is really thriving. And her name is Amy Dixon. And for those who don't know who Amy is, she's a visually impaired professional triathlete and member of the USA Paratriathlon National Team. She's also the reigning international uh, triathlon union aquathlon uh, world champion, U.S. national champion triathlete, and is ranked seventh in the world in triathlon in the Paralympic international rankings. Uh, she recently moved to San Diego to focus, uh, focus her training for the next two years on her road to the 2020 Paralympic Games and no longer two years. It's here right now, which is even crazier. But... And to add to Amy's story is she lost 98% of her vision to a rare autoimmune disease and now serves as a patient advocate and president of the Glaucoma Eyes International Nonprofit. And back in 2017, Amy founded Camp um, No Sight, No Limits, and it's the first ever camp dedicated to producing elite-level blind triathletes in San Diego. And she hopes to discover, inspire, and coach the next generation of elite blind athletes as they embody her mantra. You don't need sight to have vision. So, Amy, welcome to the podcast. What you've done is amazing. Um, and I'm psyched to talk to you about 2020. So, welcome aboard. Thank you, Ken. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. So, tell us a little bit about when you lost your sight, how you got into sport. Tell us a little bit about that story because it's fascinating. Sure. Uh, so I was diagnosed at the age of 22. I'm now 44 years old. Um, I was uh, paying my way through uh, the University of Connecticut studying pharmacy, working on my working towards my PharmD, my doctorate, and um, waiting tables at night and everything started strobing and flashing, sort of like when you look at the sun and you look away and you see spots in front of your eyes for a moment. And so I dismissed it as being overtired, you know, going to school full time and working full time and uh, and it would go away periodically and it would come back. And then uh, it was becoming increasingly problematic while driving home at night with the car headlights coming at me. And so, you know, I just, again, thinking you're overtired and it was during midterm. So I sort of dismissed it thinking like, okay, I'll get some sleep and some rest when exams are over and it didn't go away. And then I started making weird mistakes, like where I would go to put a, a dish on a table at the restaurant and I would miss. And I was like, oh my gosh. And making like catastrophic, you know, drops of dishes and china and silverware. And everybody was like, are you high? <laughs> and I said, no, no. Like I couldn't figure out what was going on. And uh, it was very strange. I felt fine. And I, my vision was 2020. You know, my vision was perfectly clear. Um, so I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I started bumping into people a lot and bumping into things and coming in and out of the kitchen. And then eventually I ended up uh, tripping over my, my college boyfriend's uh, dog at the time uh, who was asleep at the top of the stair staircase at my house. I didn't see him there and I fell down the stairs and broke my ribs. And so finally my family's like, you clearly, there's something going on. You know, you clearly need to go get checked out. So 
I waited again until the the, uh, the midterms were over, and I went um, and saw, ironically, my neurologist because um, I'd suffered from migraines since I was nine years old, and um, one of the things that can be symptomatic of, of certain migraines is this thing called aura, or where you get uh, halos or flashing lights, you know, preceding a migraine, and I had never had that type of migraine before. My migraines were different, but I thought that was a logical explanation for maybe what was happening, so my, you know, I put all my pennies into going to see that neurologist because I had no health insurance at the time. And I figured that would be the one place I would get an answer and, and be done with this shenanigans. And so I went and saw him and, uh, you know, he, we chit chatted and, and he said, um, you know, he held his hands out to the side, right and left at like a T if you're standing facing me and with his arms stretched out like a, like a cross. And uh, he says, how many fingers am I holding up? And I said, your arms are missing. <laughs> and he goes, no, no, don't, don't joke around. I said, no, no, seriously, there's like a black curtain where your eyes should be or where your arms should be. And uh, he said, okay, so did you have a blow to the head recently? Um, immediately thinking that maybe I had, uh, had detached my retina perhaps because uh, that was a sign of peripheral vision loss. And, uh, and I said, well, I had a concussion like three months prior. Um, I was also working with horses. I grew up on a horse farm and um, I was paying for school by mucking stalls again in the, in the mornings before school, waiting tables at night, doing everything I could. And um, I'd gotten hit in the head by one of the horses while cleaning out one of the stalls and uh, got a pretty decent concussion. And, but that was a couple months prior. And he said, well, you know, how long have these symptoms been going on? I said, well, around a couple months. He goes, well, it's very possible that when you hit your head, you detach your retina. We're going to go see a retinal specialist. And I said, well, no, no, no. I said, that's great and all, but all of the $200 that I saved up in tips is going to today's visit. I don't have any money to go see another specialist today. Certainly, maybe like in a month, I can save up the money. And he's like, you don't understand, um, you know, if you're detached your retina, you need surgery right away. And I'm like, you're crazy. Like, this is nuts. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll make the appointment. And he says, hold on a second. And he calls his secretary and he canceled all of his point appointments that afternoon. And he goes, Amy and I are going to go for a little walk. And I, I was like, oh crap. And because um, he knew I wasn't going to go. And so sure enough, there was an ophthalmologist in that building, the same office building where he worked. And um, he actually walked me downstairs to the doctor's office and stayed with me until they brought me in. Oh, wow. He knew I was going to bolt. Yeah, smart guy. I mean, because <laughs> I probably, I would have been totally blind, you know, 20 years ago had he not made that decision that day. Because I literally would have just been like, "See ya." That's been it's been real. Um, so I went in there, and the first thing they asked me is if I had been sick recently, which I thought was a really. They took a look in the back of my eye, and they said, "Hmm, that's odd. Have you been sick?" And I said, "What the heck does that have to do with my eyes?" You know, and uh, I said, "I got hit in the head. We're here about a, a head, you know, a concussion." And they're like, mm, no, yeah. I said, well, I had a sinus infection like, you know, eight weeks ago and went on the Z pack, nothing crazy, you know, typical change of seasons kind of thing. And they all sort of shook their head and nodded and whispered. And, and I'm like, well, I, I can hear you guys. <laughs> and they're sort of, you know, r ruminating over a diagnosis and, and they're bringing out journals and they said, oh yeah, that's yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. And I said, can you guys clue me in on what's going on? And they're like, well, we want to confirm the diagnosis. There's a specialist in New York city now, mind you, this is Danbury, Connecticut, so about, about an hour, hour and a half outside of New York, north of the city in Connecticut, uh, and it's a Friday afternoon now at four o'clock, and they said, okay, we've called him, and he's actually on his way up from the city to see you, and I'm like, that's crazy, and uh, apparently, uh, so they clued me in that it was a disease called multifocal choroiditis, uh, 
which is a rare type of uh, uveitis. And uveitis is the third leading cause of blindness. Um, it's an inflammatory autoimmune disease where your body, you know, goes haywire at some point in your life. You know, you may have a normal immune system and suddenly it just, there's a weird triggering event. For me, it just happened to be a sinus infection where suddenly your body recognizes your eyes as a foreign body and sends, sends antibodies against it every time there's a bacteria in your system. So the sinus infection triggered these antibodies and it started attacking my retina and causing permanent scar tissue to form all around the periphery. So it was like a, a round mirror if the edges of the mirror had just suddenly been taken away. And um, so it was pretty progressed and I had lost a, most of my peripheral vision because I waited so long to go to the doctors. So I finally embraced with the presence of this guy and he says, listen, kiddo, I hate to break it to you, but you're gonna lose your sight and there's nothing I can do for you. And, and I'm really, really sorry. And so at that point, after being there for about three hours on a Friday afternoon, uh, being terrified that I'm about to lose my job at the restaurant because now I'm late for my shift. Um, and Friday night, my big money night, I said, you guys are all crazy. And I used a couple choice words and stormed out of there in tears and, and thought they were nuts. And I said, I can see just fine. I don't know what you're talking about. So um, go to work, continue to live my life for a couple weeks, still bumbling around and bumping into things. And, and um, my mother, I remember my mother came by and she saw all these bruises on my legs and on my hips and she, and she thought my boyfriend was hitting me. And uh, I said, no, no. I'm like, I swear, like he doesn't hit me. I'm like, I'm just really clumsy. She's like, nobody's that clumsy. And I said, no, I, I really am. Cause I kept bumping into the kitchen counter into the island in the middle of our kitchen. Cause every day my depth perception was changing and I did, didn't realize it. Um, so yeah, so that was 22 years ago. And uh, fortunately I was able to get in to see that same specialist in New York city. Um, a month later, finally I relented and I saved up all my tips and I took out a, a, a student credit card at the student union that had like, you know, 29% interest or something like that. And went down there with my credit card in hand and, and went to go see this, this famous guy who named and discovered my disease. Um, hoping that he could fix me. And he said, well, I can't fix you, but I can slow it down. And the way we're going to do that is high-dose oral steroids. So I went on um, high-dose steroids for several months. I gained about 75 pounds. Um, and my disease went into remission for about six years. So fast forward, um, I was on and off steroids for the past you know, 20 years. And about 11, 12 years ago, um, my disease came out of remission, same thing, bronchitis, you know, like some sort of triggering event. And, um, this time I went on high dose steroids, this time it didn't work, uh, as well or as effectively. And I lost most of my remaining vision and also gained a lot of weight. And I was very frustrated with, um, you know, I grew up playing soccer. I was a tennis player in high school. Um, uh, I was a swimmer from the time I was five. I was on the swim team all through high school as well mediocre swimmer at best, um, ran cross country. So really active kid and grew up on a farm with horses and always, always had a horse and was riding every single day. And uh, here I was suddenly 75 pounds overweight. And um, I had never had to quote unquote exercise ever as an adult because, you know, I always done stuff that kept me active and didn't necessarily feel like exercise because I was doing a sport per se. So suddenly, you know, I was relegated with little vision to try to figure out how to how to lose this weight and get back to feeling like myself. So a friend of mine actually um, that I met through the local Lions Club organization, which is their their mission is to pe help people with vision loss. 
uh, dragged me out of my depression and, and my apartment and, and took me to the pool uh, to do an aqua, aqua jogging or aqua fit class with the little, dumb, little foam dumbbells with the little old ladies at the pool. And I thought it was just kind of ridiculous, but um, it was all that I could really do because my body really hurt from all the weight and I, like my knees hurt, my joints hurt, everything just hurt and uh, from all the drugs. And I had been on chemotherapy drugs as well that were wreaking havoc on my system. Again, all, the goal was to suppress my immune system. So um, I started, you know, doing the aqua, aqua fit with the little old ladies. And then I got bored of that after a couple months. And I decided to start swimming some laps. And um, I was only able to do 10 laps at a time, like breaststroke or backstroke. I was so out of shape. And, and it had been 20 years since I swam competitively. And, and I was so frustrated with my progress. And one of my friends had said, hey, listen, there's this uh, fundraiser coming up for the YMCA and it's a mile swim. And, you know, like, I'll, I'll sponsor you for it if you want, you know, five bucks a lap and, and the money goes to the YMCA. And I thought, well, maybe that's something to shoot for. It's a good goal. So, um, as, you know, I worked my way up to 30 laps and I thought, oh my gosh, I have to do 66 laps. I'm going to die. And uh, it's going to take me forever. So I did it. And ironically, um, the woman who was my lap counter that day uh, was none other than Olympian um, Donna de Verona. Uh, and she happened to live in my town of Greenwich, Connecticut, where I was living. And she was a member at my YMCA and had, unbeknownst to me had volunteered to be my, my lap counter. And I didn't realize who she was until after I was done. And I was, of course, I was mortified because I was so slow. Um, but she was so lovely and so supportive. And, and I thought, gee, if I could do this, like, what else can I do with my limited vision? So I really wanted to get to lose the weight. So I started seeing all these spin classes going on and I heard the music and it looked really fun. But here I have my, at this point now I have a guide dog. I traded in my car for a cane and then my cane for a dog. Um, Cause the cane's not so good at detecting cars, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I can only <laughs> assume. I can only assume. Yeah. It, it, it's great when you hit them, but like at that point it's too late. <laughs> so, or tough to ride your bike with a cane too. Right. No, it's very tough. So <laughs> I, w I really wanted to do these spin classes. It looked like a lot of fun, but I was embarrassed because of my blindness and my dog and I didn't want to stick out and I didn't want people to feel sorry for me or I didn't want to, you know, be that, that person in the room. And I also didn't know how my dog was going to respond to like the really loud music. So I waited until the class was over every day and then I would sneak in before they locked the room and I'd turn all the lights out and I'd go in there with my headphones on and I'd bike like crazy for 20 minutes and I, until I thought I was going to pass out. And, um, and then finally, after a few weeks of this, the instructor busted me one day. She goes, I see you sneaking in after class every day. She's like, would you just come and take my class already? I was like, no, I, I'm not ready to do like a whole hour on a bike. I'm out of shape. And she goes, just come. It'll be fun. Go at your own pace. And she's like, I'll turn the music down for your dog. And she was so sweet. And like, that was the beginning of um, my journey to real fitness. And I became addicted to spin classes. I really loved it. Everybody was so fun and so supportive and would bring treats for my dog or a blanket for him to lay on or a yoga mat. And, and then um, I lost about 25 pounds doing that. And so I was like, well, I'd really love to run because running is always, has always been the most effective way for me to lose weight. Well, you know, so, but I couldn't see to run by myself. So I was trying to figure out how to do that safely. I said, well, I'll start on the treadmill and I started holding on, you know, to the front bar. And I thought, well, that's not really good biomechanics. It's bad for your back. So I sort of rigged it with a, one of those elastic therabands around my waist so that I wouldn't fall off. 
um, if I miss missteps, because I didn't want to be one of those YouTube videos of like, <laughs> somebody flying off the back of a treadmill. I was like, oh gosh, like I already stick out enough because I have this dog laying next to the treadmill at the YMCA. People are already staring at me, waiting for me to, to, to fall. So I'm just like, okay, let's do a little preventative maintenance. So that seemed to be pretty effective. And I was able to sort of walk jog. And I, you know, I was posting my progress on social media and someone said, hey, you're swimming and biking and running. Have you thought about doing triathlon? I said, well, that sounds kind of batshit crazy, <laughs> but I, you know, I will try, my motto in life is I'll try anything once, twice if I like it. So I said, yeah, sure, let's, let's do it. I said, how does this even work? So she took me down to an expo that was taking place called Trimania at um, uh, Columbia University in New York City. And we met this gentleman who was, uh, at the time, was a volunteer for USA Paratriathlon, and he had an old tandem bike sitting in his garage up in Boston and offered to drive it down to Connecticut for me to have on permanent loan um, as my, my bike. The bike was way too big. It was steel. It weighed about 65 pounds. Uh, it had actually raced with, with two men at the Paralympics, in, I think, in 1976, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so it was a death trap. Uh, way, way too big, but but it was now my bike. And so Carolyn Gaynor, uh, the girl that I met through social media, she and I did my first race uh, six and a half years ago in June. And the time that we did it in was fast enough to get some recognition from USA Paratriathlon for a talent ID camp. And here we are. Wow. There's a lot of steps. Yeah. That's a crazy story with what you've done and, yeah. and everything. That's that's a, That's phenomenal. And I, I love the fact that, you know, you, at first you were afraid, but the fact that you would go into the gym and really just start, you know, headed in that right direction, right? It's, it's that first step that you really need to take. Exactly. What, um, so yeah. And it must've been crazy getting that diagnosis, right. Of wondering, oh my God, what's next? How are we going to do it? You know, walk us through that. I'm sure that, you know, we could probably talk about that for four years, but you know, what was right. that, what was that like, you know, actually getting that? Uh, well, I really, I, mean, I was just telling somebody the, the other day, I didn't never knew anybody who was blind before. I, you know, the, my only experience ever meeting or, or being around somebody who was blind or visually impaired was, you know, the New York city subway where I honestly, where I would see people panhandling and I was like, Oh my gosh, that's what, what a, what a sad life. And like, you know, what am I going to do if I, you know, am I going to have to move back in with my family, which like for me was like the worst like thing I could possibly imagine, uh, or be, be, be dependent upon my family for the rest of my life, you know, never be able to work. You know, I've been working so hard for this career and, and to be successful in, in pharmaceuticals. And I had this dream of being this amazing researcher and working in a laboratory and, you know, I can't see anymore. And, like what is what is my life going to look like and so I had no idea it wasn't in my wheelhouse that people with vision loss were attorneys and doctors and uh you know uh ultra runners and hikers and mountain climbers and whitewater kayakers and triathletes you know that was certainly not in my wheelhouse at all and um the word athletics and blind just didn't even register so uh yeah it was it was pretty devastating in that like I really thought my life was over as I knew it and which was true but it, it ended up being a blessing. What um and taking those you know taking those first steps into going into triathlon and and like you said it's someone said hey you're running you're biking you're swimming 
How was that going into doing something guided like that? I'm sure that's a little bit different than, you know, tying yourself to the treadmill or doing the spin class because now it's, it's trusting that person, right? It's, and <laughs> I know for me, it's even when I'm driving in a car, I have a hard time being a passenger. I can, I can only imagine what it's like when you're on a run or riding on a bike. Talk to us a little bit I about that feeling. Yeah, well, I actually was set up for success in this department because, um, you know, I had trained horses my whole life. Um, uh, that's and true. So, you know, like, um, you know, I, there's a certain amount of trust that you have in a 1,200 pound animal to make good decisions. Although, like, I certainly wouldn't trust my life to a horse. Because um, <laughs> that's, you know, even though as I was losing my vision, my horse was kind of adapting along with me, which is really interesting. But, you know, now I traded in my car for a cane and my cane for a dog, and suddenly I'm putting my my life in the hands of a four-legged animal to make, you know, life and death decisions and, and also navigational decisions for me on a minute by minute basis. And so I figured if I was brave and that was the hardest thing was, was trusting a dog. And so once I had made that, I'd already been working with my guide dog, I think for two years, three years by the time, no longer than that, maybe three years. Um, by the time I discovered triathlon and so I was already set up like, well, wow, if I can trust a dog with my life, I can certainly trust a, a human uh, because they can talk <laughs> so, and they can tell me things where the dog can't like tell me, oh, by the way, that's the reason why I'm stopping is because there's a tree branch on the ground in front of you. Um, yeah, so, you know, a human can tell me that they can tell me, okay, we're going to go take a right here because there's a pothole coming up or whatever. The dog can't tell me that. I just have to trust that there's a reason why he's taking me to the right. I, and I don't know why. Um, so yeah, it was very, it was actually very easy for me to hop on the back of a bike with a person. Right. Wow. I, I think I trust, sometimes I trust my dog more than most people anyways. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't need them to walk me, right? Or, or, or to right? get around. Yeah. Yeah. So what about training, right? And so you're 44 years old, 44, or 42, 44. Yep. And I'm 46, and you're out there training six, seven, eight hours a day. Talk to us. Talk to us about that because that's a whole, you know, that's a whole world that I think people wonder how individuals do that and how you pull that off and your daily routine. You eat a lot of food. <laughs> it's the dirty secret of triathlon that we talked about. You eat a lot of food. Um, yeah. So I mean, I'm really. Uh, you know, it's not an easy thing being an athlete at 44. I don't think it's an athlete being a professional athlete at any age. Um, it really does take a village. I mean, I've got a team of, you know, I've got a, an amazing coach who is at the at the helm, uh, McKeeley Jones. She's a two-time Olympian, uh, Olympic silver medalist, um, seven-time ITU world champion, uh, Ironman world champion, only athlete male or female to win Ironman Kona and uh, win an Olympic medal in the same year. Um, she's in the ITU Hall of Fame. I mean, she's, I've got like the best of the best at the helm there. So she is super experienced. And in addition to that, she also guided my competitor, uh, Katie Kelly, uh, from Australia, because she's an Australian citizen, um, at the Paralympics in Rio, uh, four years ago. So she has a unique perspective as a guide as well. So she's in charge of my day-to-day -day life and having somebody like that who's been through Olymp several Olympic cycles and also the Paralympic cycle and understands the level of commitment, training, and also, you know, McKeeley's now 50, what, she's still competing at the highest level, and, you know, understanding the unique needs of an older athlete, um, but, I mean, without her, and I have a huge team of acupuncturists, chiropractor, active release therapists, uh, massage therapists, 
uh, dietitians, sports psychologists, um, just and a network of uh, running guides that are local to me. I've got like six different women that I run with. I've got six different uh, pilots that I train with on the bike. Um, uh, just you know, equipment, you know, manufacturers that make, you know, things possible for me to use, uh, like for training indoors, I've got the Wahoo kicker. So I, I do 95% of my workouts indoors on the bike. And um, so, yeah, so it, it makes it possible for me to, to keep up with my body, uh, having this, this network of people and su support uh, mental and physical uh, to keep me going every day. Cause there's, you know, this morning I wanted, I honestly, I almost, burst into tears about halfway through my swim set because everything was hurting uh I felt like I was digging myself into a hole and I and uh it's because I've had three really hard days in a row uh yesterday was you know about six hours of swim bike run lift weights and um and then getting some blood drawn in there and a doctor's appointment um I probably didn't take in enough calories yesterday which is probably why I felt so bad this morning so it was one of those teachable moments <laughs> um so, you know, this morning, just sort of pushing through that discomfort and frustration and going, you know what, you're taking longer to warm up and you probably don't have enough food on board. So you're just going to have to suffer through this and know that, you know, next week when you've got the same, the same kind of workouts back to back, you got to eat better. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not an easy road. Um, you know, it's, as I have a sports psychologist who's like, that's why less than, you know, 0.5% of, you know, professional athletes even get to go to the Olympics. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's expensive. It's heartbreaking. It's your body hurts a lot. I call it putting Humpty Dumpty back together again every week. Uh, you know, I'm back at, you know, back and forth between all the physio appointments probably three to four days a week. Um, and that's just so that I can get up and do it again and hit it hard the next day. Um, one of the challenges is that I'm a sprint distance athlete. So a lot of my uh, workouts are at or above my threshold. So very intense, high intervals. Um, and I don't really get days off. Um, I get a, usually a day off if I'm traveling, but that's about it. Um, my coach has me do what's called active recovery. So, um, you know, tomorrow will be an active recovery day. I'll have a two hour moderate bike ride and then an easy 30 minute run off the bike. And then I'm racing on Sunday. I'm doing a, a running race on Sunday. So, um, and that's, you know, that's two and a half hours of activity as a, as a recovery, which doesn't sound like a recovery to most people. It's by most people's workout, but uh, believe it or not, compared to what I do the rest of the week, you know, it, that actually feels pretty good. And it flushes the lactic acid out of my muscles and, and, uh, and gets me, you know, my body prepared to, to go and do a hard effort. But, you know, one of the things that, that amateur athletes tend to make a mistake is they, they go hard on their easy days. And when I go easy, I mean, we're talking like probably, you know, a third or excuse me, two thirds of the, my normal pace, maybe even half on some days, just like literally it's a conversational, I have no ego about it. So if like I go out on Sunday for a recovery jog, I have no issue running a 10 minute mile, like, and just enjoying and whatever, because the purpose is not to go fast. The purpose is to get the body moving and get it prepared to do what to, to go fast the next day. So. Yeah. What do they say? Yeah. Most amateur athletes go too hard when they're supposed to go easy and go too easy when they're supposed to go hard. Exactly. Like, you know, you make sure you're all in on those days that you have to go hard and you're not going to be able to, if you, if you're constantly digging yourself into a hole. So talk to us a little bit about nutrition. Do you follow any specific diet? Is there, or is it, you know, I, talk to us a little I bit about do. that. So, yeah. So 90% of uveitis, uh, inflammatory eye disease patients have, uh, irritable bowel disease. 
uh, which um, unfortunately I'm within that 90%. So I have really bad GI issues that I've been dealing with for about uh, 10 years. And when I became an athlete, they became exacerbated because that tends to put more stress on the gut. And so I have to, you know, it's still a lot of trial and error and I still make mistakes along the way. But, um, you know, my diet is very specific to me. I always say that when people ask me about my diet, because they're like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, well, what works for me is not necessarily what's going to work for you. But um, I tend to eat uh, a lot of jasmine rice. Jasmine rice, white rice specifically, is very easy on the gut. Um, you know, brown rice is actually very, you know, people think brown rice is healthier. Well, it's healthy if you have a healthy gut, which I don't. So it's very abrasive. Um, so I stay away from things like, uh, ironically, I stay away from a lot of like leafy green vegetables and uh, cruciferous vegetables. So I keep kind of a low residue diet. It's um, a lot of uh, gluten-free uh, waffle, frozen waffles for breakfast is kind of my go-to breakfast before I swim at 6 a.m. Then I get back and I'll do two soft-boiled eggs over rice with some chicken and apple sausage that I nuke really quick. Um, and then I'll do, uh, after my next workout, I'll do a shake with like, uh, coconut milk or almond milk with, uh, some collagen protein powder. I, I like vital proteins. Um, again, collagen is really healing on the gut. Um, and, uh, and I'll put, I'll put like a, a vegetable powder in there, or I'll put some spinach in there. Um, cause it's a little bit easier for me to digest. Um, sometimes kale too, like just so I can get the vegetables in there in a sneaky way. Um, and I'll throw frozen acai and frozen banana and fruit in there as well. I try to stay away from um, fruit that has seeds in it, like a lot of strawberries and berries and things like that. Blue blueberries, or not blueberries, blackberries and raspberries that have seeds, because again, those are hard on my gut. Um, and I, I am a queen of snacking. I carry like a bag of cashews around. I always carry like little individual packets of almond butter or rice cakes uh, are in every bag that I own. Um, and then dinner is usually either sushi or chicken and rice um, or a poke bowl because we're here in San Diego, uh, big big poke bowl fan. And chicken pad like pad thai noodles is also another go-to. So that's pretty much my diet. And I have a I have a cookie problem. Um, so, <laughs> so there's a Uber Eats is like a gateway drug for 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 an athlete who's hungry at night. So. Uh, every Tuesday night, I'll allow myself to get uh, two gluten-free chocolate chip cookies delivered to my house <laughs> from this local. It's like a dollar ninety-nine delivery, and it's so good. And so that's my cheat. That's my cheat day is uh, my gluten-free chocolate chip cookies. Perfect. Wow. And what about and yeah. where do things stand for twenty twenty? So right now, uh, I'm currently currently ranked number seven in the Paralympic rankings and eight in the ITU rankings. Those are two separate ranking systems. Um, and uh, I need to be in the top nine of the Paralympic rankings, which seven keeps me in there. Uh, as of June 28th is the, the final, the, the last qualifying race in Montreal. So um, I need to continue racing to protect or improve my ranking. Uh, this season. So the first stop on the tour is going to be in six weeks in Devonport, Australia on the island of Tasmania. So pretty excited about that. And luckily they've been lesser affected by the fires there on the island. Uh, although there are some fires out there, but they're pretty far from the venue, I guess, where, we, where we're going to be. Um, and then from there, I head to Sarasota. We've got our Pan Am uh, championships. Um, and that will be uh, a selection, the top two Americans from that will be the Americans that represent the U.S. at Tokyo, but it doesn't guarantee me that slot. It just means that, you know, the top two, if, if we're both ranked in the top 
nine at the end of the uh, end of the end of the June, uh, we'll both get to go. So that's Pan Ams, and then a week later, I've got a World Cup also in Sarasota. So I'll stay down there in between, probably train at the National Training Center in Claremont, Florida. And then from there, we're probably going to uh, Bermuda in April for a World Cup. Then we have World Championships in Milan in May, uh, a World Series race in Yokohama, Japan in May as well. Uh, I won that race a few years ago, so I'm excited to go back. Um, and then uh, the final race hopefully will be in Montreal. And hopefully it will be decided, my ranking will be decided at that point. Montreal is sort of a backup um, race, if you will. If I'm in a good position, ideally I won't have to race there. Uh, but I'm keeping it in the hopper in case, in case I need it to improve or maintain my ranking. Wow. That's amazing. So I think yeah. definitely the way you're talking, the way you're training, I think you're on definitely on the right path to making that happen. Yeah. Knock on wood. I mean, the goal right now is, is you know, like I'm 44, is to, the, the goal is to stay healthy and be consistent. And I'm excited about this year. Like I get butterflies because this is the first year last year. So I've had 33 surgeries on my eyes. I went through uh, two years of chemotherapy. And then starting uh, seven years ago, I began having surgeries because my, my disease progressed pretty rapidly. And so um, the surgery didn't even exist 10 years ago. And so I have uh, steroid implants in both of my eyes. So um, this means I no longer have to orally take steroids to control my disease. They're actually controlled by um, a steroid uh, device inside my eye that keeps the steroid inside the eye and no systemic side effects. However, um, they need to be replaced fairly often and also they cause glaucoma. So I have glaucoma now in addition to uveitis and um, the glaucoma uh, was pretty aggressive in the beginning and I had to have a lot of surgery. So that's been very disruptive to my racing and training. I've managed to knock on wood, never miss a race. Um, thanks to an amazing team of surgeons at Yale University back in Connecticut. Um, I've been flying back, back and forth for all my surgeries because there aren't any surgeons here on the West Coast that perform that type of surgery. Um, last year in 2018, I had 12 surgeries in one year um, and managed to race all through it. And I managed to finish up number five in the world uh, that season. Um, so I was pretty happy that I was able to do that. But this is 2019 is the first year it, since I've started my career as an athlete that I have had no surgeries. And what that means is that instead of being off for six weeks in November, December, due to the surgical complications and having to recuperate, I've been able to train consistently through November, December for the first time ever. And so I'm more fit now than I was at World Championships this year in September. Um, and, you know, running faster, biking faster, swimming faster. So um, it's really exciting to see, you know, the work go in and what can happen when I'm able to be consistent and healthy. And I better knock wood when I say that. But um, yeah, so I'm going into the first race of the season. Normally, I'm playing catch up and having a lot of anxiety about, oh, my gosh, there's so much pressure. Because if we don't finish in the top three uh, and within 2% of the winning time on the podium at our race at Pan Am, uh, we don't make the national team. And so that means that you are entirely self-funded for the rest of the season. So Team USA pays for nothing. So there's a lot of pressure on that race. And so I've always been in a really tough spot. And then I'm literally starting January 1st with from being six weeks off and having six weeks to get ready for the most important race of the year for me financially. Um, and so now I don't have that same kind of pressure. I'm going into this race going, yeah, I'm, I'm really fit. I feel good. Like I've had a good off, like 
we had a nice, you know, preseason and, and things are going well. So it's a really great position to be in. I'm, I'm very grateful. Awesome. No, definitely sounds like it. Well, Amy, this was amazing. I think, you know, you're an inspiration. You've overcome some crazy stuff. I'm sure you're going to overcome much more crazy stuff as well. But where can people find you? Where can they find out more about you and you know, hopefully support your journey as well? Yeah, yeah. So um, they can find me at amydixonusa.com or um, I'm on Instagram at no site, no limits, S-I-G-H-T. Um, I also, as you mentioned in the beginning, I run a camp for blind athletes. Um, I, my, my philosophy is that if I'm not going to be the one to get to the Paralympic Games, I'd like to coach the next person that does. So I've been working with about 30 blind athletes for the past three years, um, everything from sprints to Ironman distance. And so uh, that website is nosightnolimits.com. And uh, you can find more about like you can donate there or you can donate on my website uh, towards uh, Tokyo. Uh, I'm very, very grateful. Um, I don't have a lot of financial sponsors. Team USA is uh, very good to us in that they cover about half of our races of the season, but the other half um, we have to pay for ourselves and our guides. So I race with a guide um, and it costs about $4,000 per race when you're talking about races in Australia and Japan and Montreal. So uh, it's not an inexpensive sport. So I'm very grateful for all this, the financial support I get from private donors and from, from organizations locally that help me out. Perfect. Perfect. And if anyone has any questions, comments, or feedback and wants to reach out to me more about Amy, feel free to reach out to me at kenandtheexecutiveathletes.com. But I want to wish you amazing luck, Amy, in your endeavors for 2020. Keep up training hard and keeping your head up because it sounds like what you're doing is awesome. So it was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And again, everyone have a great weekend. Go out there and crush it and try to follow Amy. All right. Perfect. We are.